It is my very real pleasure to be with you again. And uh, two or three things before I begin. One, if you had not heard that song uh, that we, the next to last, that we sang by John Newton, or the poem as I knew it, or have known it, one of my favorite poems, you will find it at the end of um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you've not read that book, then shame on you. It's a very good book, and I encourage you to find it. If you read it, and then when you come to it in the context it is written, you'll appreciate it even more. Um, thanks to Matt for thinking of me in your time of need. And I trust the Lord will help as we walk through some things together. I was asked by Matt to give you a commercial, so I'm going to do that. Pam and I, my son Daniel, his wife Michelle, Micah and his wife Michelle, and some other folks who have committed to work with us operate a ministry called Vision for Living Ministries. One of the things, a couple of things we do, one is on Monday, Wednesday, uh, Wednesdays, a uh, podcast comes out covering different topics, biblical topics and pertinent Christian issues, uh, and that comes out on Wednesdays. But the one I want to really bring to your attention is called Passion for Christ Summit. Passion for Christ Summit is a, about a half a week, four-day get-together of Christian singles, four Christian singles, a retreat, in which we hope if you come, you will... Find rest for your body, sort of. We have a lot of fun, so that takes a lot of energy. Restoration for your soul and relaxation as well. Now, we meet together on a Thursday, and, you know, I probably ought to have my phone. It's got my notes in it. And... Uh, Begins Thursday evening this year. Let me pull up this uh, note so I can get this all for you. Now, this is your pastor's fault. He's the one that told me to do this. Okay, so. Um, first of all, if you want to see a video that's sort of a promo and um, introduction to Passion for Christ Summit, it's for Christian singles 18 and older. Uh, if you want to see that, you can go to the website, Passion for Christ Summit. Dot org or visionforliving.org. And um, that's with a four in there, an actual number four, Passion for Christ, Vision for Living. <clears throat> we meet this year, October 27th to the 30th. The theme is Seeking, Looking to Jesus. Um, the next generation of believers is our mission, and P4C exists to instill in them a passion for Christ. Through three de dedicated days, we provide a relaxed environment where intense biblical exposition, practical spiritual application, and refreshing activities create the setting. We challenge and equip young adults to prepare them for life and service in their community and the local church. Enjoy deep fellowship with our believe other believers and be released to effectively live for the glory of Christ. I have some postcards, just happen to have some postcards that will give you some information if you'd like to have that so you can remember it, maybe pray about getting the time off or whatever it takes for you to come. But we have websites and things on the postcards as well. So um, the, vi the video is also on YouTube, but if you go to our website, either of those websites, you can find that. Um, we'd love to have you. It's, um, 
it's just a blessed time. And uh, sometimes if you're a serious-minded young adult, single, you love the Lord, but sometimes you just feel like, man, is there anybody else out there, you know, besides just me or my little group here? And you'll find there are. We don't all look exactly the same and talk exactly the same. And some of us are from the South, some from the North. Some are Baptists and some are Presbyterians and some are other things. Uh, but thank the Lord we get together. We love the Word together. We love each other. Well, we stay up late. We get tired. And on Sunday morning when I close it out, I have to yell at them to keep them awake. And, uh, but it's a great time in the Lord. <clears throat> and so if you have other questions, please let me know. Now, I think that's it. I have prayed about this morning's message. Obviously, um, I didn't hear about this till Thursday or Friday. And that's okay. I just want, uh, I appreciate you praying for the ministry here. And I, I will say this. When I was a pastor, <clears throat> it's been 25 uh, years ago now, uh, I prayed for what you have here. Now, no church is perfect, and we all have our foggles and faults and so forth. But, and I prayed that God would raise up in the Evansville area, the tri-state area, churches that were faithful to the gospel and strengthen families and think in terms of the next generation. And I, I see that here, and I'm grateful for what I see. And I, I pray that it will continue and grow and um, uh, it, it, it's a blessing to our souls, to Pam and I. It's my wife Pam, by the way, if you've not met her, you need to meet her. Meet her. She's the better part of this uh, show. And, uh, uh, but we, we're grateful, grateful for Matt, for his friendship, for his commitment to the gospel. You have something special here, and by that I mean something that God is doing, he has done, and... It will happen over a generation, has been, and will continue to happen as you are faithful and as you lift up those who undergird those who minister to Christ and are your ministers and servants, then uh, look forward to the Lord doing really good things as he already has. You can also look forward to some opposition from the devil because he certainly wants to stir things up and distract and detract from what matters. But stay the course, and God bless you as you do. Now, most of us, almost all of us, think without thinking. Most of us do not consciously guard and guide our minds. Our thoughts are the product of ingrained habits. Whether good or bad, it's the nature of humans to think out of habit. Our minds are too often what control us instead of being controlled by us. Uh, many of us have heard that quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, about depression or trouble that we have with our thoughts. And he said, most problems could be prevented for Christians if they would talk to themselves instead of listen to themselves. And what he is encouraging us to do is conscientiously control our thinking. It's also interesting how we use the idea of the mind or mind. 
parents may instruct their children to mind them. And if asked to do something, you may respond, okay, I don't mind. In the first case, parents are training their children to take what they say seriously, so seriously that they obey. In the second case, we are reassuring the one making a request of us that there's nothing in our thinking that would prevent us from doing what they ask. We're still thinking about thinking, the mind, minding the mind. In each case, what drives action is the activity of the mind. The scripture makes it clear that there's both a natural or carnal way of thinking, carnal-mindedness, natural-mindedness, and a spiritual way of thinking, spiritual-mindedness. For to be carnal-minded is death, but to be spiritually-minded is life and peace, Romans 8, 6. So I would say, and I believe you would agree, that your mind is a very important part of your life, an indispensable part of your life. And if you and I are called to pursue the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, as chapter 3, in chapter 3, Paul commands and exhorts us to do, then our mindedness, the whole realm of our thinking, considering, regarding, contemplating, even our unplanned musings and wanderings of the mind are crucial to our success in this endeavor of pursuing the prize, of pressing to the mark of the upper call in Christ Jesus. Now that's the passage we think of when we think of Philippians, right? We think of, I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But there's a process involved. There's something that must be true, some things that must happen for you and me if this is to happen, individually and as the body of Christ. What better way, what better thing could we pursue for our minds than the mind of Christ? Impossible? It seems so. To have, well, we're told we have the mind of Christ, but then to exercise and apply the mind of Christ is really sounds, well, it is impossible except for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So, uh, Turn with me, if you if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at 16 verses. Now, we could well preach 8, 10, 12, 20 sermons here. I, I, I did this. There's a reason why I chose such a large text around the obvious one of, of Christ emptying himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I want us to get a, a large picture of this whole idea of the mind, of our thinking, and how that affects us and how it matters in our Christian walk. And so that's why we're looking at such a large section. We'll simply begin just with the opening verses, and then we'll read the others as we go there. But Paul said to the Philippian Christians, If there be therefore any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any, the King James says, bowels of mercy, if any depth of affection, and mercy. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself or herself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. <clears throat> well, there are three main things that I want us to see, and then we'll kind of look at that more closely as we look at each one. The first thing I want us to notice is the Christian motive. The Christian motive. In those first four verses I just read, we see something about motivation. Motivation is an important, even essential element of what we pursue in life. And if we're to pursue the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul exhorts us to do in, in chapter 3, motivation is <clears throat> very important. We hear of motivational tools, motivational seminars, motivational speakers. We do well to ask ourselves regularly, what motivates us? What motivates me? What drives me? What makes me think the way I think and moves me to do what I do? Paul addresses this for the Philippians and for us. And that is what verses 1 through 4 are about. He's told them what motivates him in chapter 1 particularly. Now he asks them, actually challenges them to be motivated by something far greater than any earthly motivation. Paul deals in these verses with two possible aspects of motivation. The positive aspect and the negative aspect. And he, he deals with the positive aspect first. Uh, I want to deal with the negative aspect first and get that out of the way because that's exactly what you and I need to do. We need to move out of the way. What motivates us negatively? What are the negative aspects of us? I'm off. There we go. Okay. So, first let's look at the negative aspect. Verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. King James says strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves or himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. What is this negative aspect of motivation that we're talking about? What motivation so impacts our thinking that we are stunted in our pursuit? of Christ's likeness. Paul nails it for us here. He waves the red flag for us, the warning flag. There's not one millimeter of space in the Christian mind for what Paul describes as selfish ambition. All of us, each of us is disgusted with, even angered by what we see as bad politics. In fact, some of us may think there's no such thing as good politics. We see information leaked to gain an advantage jockeying for position to win, and we say, all politicians are alike. But how quickly do we recognize similar attitudes and actions in ourselves? Why do we not recognize this view of ourselves, this empty conceit, as Paul describes it, which is so obvious in others and leads us to be solely committed to our own way, our own welfare, to the ignoring or at least slighting the needs or concerns of others. It's the same motivation. Different context. In fact, that's why we often talk about people politicking to get their way. One day the disciples of Jesus were arguing about who was the greatest. So later, after it was all quieted down, now you can kind of get the scene here, they, they figured Jesus... Forgetting he's the omniscient Lord, they figure he didn't overhear. 
<clears throat> so later Jesus asked, what were you arguing about earlier? And what did they say? Nothing. Why? Because they were caught. He knew their thoughts. They had been selfish and prideful in the presence of the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ's response was this. Without a response from them, but going right to the heart, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. Do nothing through selfish ambition or deceit. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, Paul says, but also for the interest of others. We all know why Paul says this, why he has to say it. Because number one is naturally our first interest. Really, look out for O number one, as the old saying goes. Our problem with addressing spiritual and biblical realities of this nature is that what is negative to God often appears positive to us and to the natural mind. While what is positive and right and biblical to God is unattractive and avoidable often to us. Neither the natural man nor the natural mind receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him or her. That's why Paul has to say so directly to them, and by way of preservation of the Word and by the Spirit's work even now to us, do nothing through selfish ambition or empty deceit. We naturally look out for number one first, for me. I, I don't know about you, but some of these recent uses of terminology really, well, the first they point out my own sin and my own need, but the, the me time phrase. You know, you deserve this. How about some me time? I think back to Susanna Wesley, who had, I don't know, countless children. And when she wanted to be by herself, or be able to pray, she threw her apron over her head for a prayer time. Now, do I suggest that everybody should be like that? That's not the point. The point is we're so consumed with me. And then it doesn't only go for things, by the way. It also goes for opinions. Our opinions matter more than others, we think. It also Well, our side of the argument, our side of the discussion carries more weight, is more worthy of being heard. I mean, don't we? I, I grew up in a church environment. It was a Baptist environment, Southern Baptist environment. And uh, the congregation made all decisions. That can lead to a lot of chaos. But one of the favorite lines from people is, well, I'm going to get my two cents worth in. That sort of nails it for us, doesn't it? That sense that my opinion matters. And it matters as much, if not more, than others, especially if I'm right. Now, we're not talking about right and wrong here. We're actually talking about personal preference, opinions. 
It seems that at the church at Philippi, there were two women, uh, and they had been at odds and had created division among God's people. The attitudes there were in need of addressing. There needed to be change. Selfishness, argumentativeness, and divisiveness had to go. If the Lord was to be magnified, if the people of God were to be edified, if the name of Christ glorified, these things had to go. And whether we're talking about life in the body or one-on-one relationships, the need's the same. Nothing is to be motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem or regard other better than himself or herself. Now, it's interesting that the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes is used here, lowliness of mind, this idea of lowliness. When Jesus opened the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the word, poor. Actually, Jesus used a word that would have come to mind if they had seen a beggar on the side of the street, stooped over, unable to help himself, but just hoping someone would have mercy on him or her. Stooped with physical inability and poor and unable financially and socially to advance. Now this is what we're called to. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of us esteem the others about us better than ourselves. This is the negative aspect of the Christian motivation. But second, let's see the positive aspect. Verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy that by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then the last part of verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves or himself. The positive side of Paul's appeal far outweighs the warning of the negative side. The positive aspect of our Christian discipleship far outweighs any negative motivation. It is what one Puritan refers to as the expulsive power of a greater affection. You get that. A greater affection, a greater love, a love for Christ, a love for the body, a love for Christians, a love for my wife, a love for my husband, a love for my... uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, expels love for self. It pushes aside love for self. And Paul points to the ministry of Christ on our behalf here. If Christ is all to us, how can we take our responsibility for our attitude to one another lightly? If Christ is our comforter, our parakletos, and stands for us, at the throne of God and stands with us in our great struggle of life. What should be our outlook and what should motivate us in our relationships with brothers and sisters, with husbands and wives? Is he not our consoler in times of trouble? Is he not compassionate toward us in spite of our sinfulness, selfishness, and worldliness? Do we not have sweet and blessed fellowship and communion with him and with the Father because of him? 
if these things are so, and they most assuredly are, are they not sufficient motivation to produce oneness of mind, love, soul, and heart? Are we not desiring are we not desirous of the same thing and committed to the same Lord? If Christ, who is perfection in every way, who is holy, looks on us with our many faults and foibles and is forbearing and faithful toward us and to us, loving and kind, what does this require of us? More importantly, what does it, what does it, bring out of us if not to be of the same mind toward one another in lowliness of mind esteeming each other better than ourselves this is the Christian motivation but that leads us to a second thing and we touched on it already of course and that is the Christian mind verse 5 let this you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind. You're probably familiar with the old saying, when asked if a task is difficult or unpleasant, say, well, if you don't mind, it don't matter, right? We probably all used that little cliche before. But for the Christian, you should mind, and it does matter. Our thinking, our motivation, our mindedness matter. There was an advertisement years ago on television, a long time ago, some of you may remember it, asking for financial support for certain colleges. They were, what were then were colleges for minorities. But the punchline at the end of the advertisement was this, because the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, that's true. John Piper's written a book, Don't Waste Your Life, but we could just as easily write a book, Don't Waste Your Mind. Don't Waste Your Thinking. Now think of the scriptures that address the mind. I mean, I just have written down a few, but you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Because to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Let every man be fully persuaded, and I might say woman, every person, every Christian be fully persuaded in his own mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. I stir up your pure minds, Peter says, by way of remembrance. And other scriptures challenge all of these. And other scriptures challenge and command us to take our responsibility for the way we think seriously. To take command of our minds. To have a certain mind. A certain thinking, a mental frame of reference. What then is the Christian mind? What is this we pursue, we seek for in our pursuit of the high prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus? 
But if you could gather all these admonitions and encapsulate them, what would you call it? The Christian mind is nothing more or less than the mind of Christ. In what way then do we understand and apply the mind of Christ? Is this theory something we do while we're worshiping, while we're together, gathered people of God on the Lord's Day morning or at small group? How does one have the mind of Christ in herself, in himself? How do we exercise, apply the mind of Christ? Paul has already challenged us to be like-minded, one-minded, lowly-minded. What are the elements of the mind of the indwelling Christ that we should pursue, apply, and exercise? I want to look at those elements. The first is, has to do with rights. Verse 6. Well, let's just run into it from verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. If other translations say, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What do we see in Christ that since Christ is in us, should be in us, is in us, that we can apply? Christ laid aside the prerogatives of deity. What we have here is a case of equality in the Godhead, the, the triune Godhead, co-equal, co-eternal, in fellowship with one another, and one member of this eternally equal, eternally deity, eternal deity submits to the other. Who being in the form of God, he had the essential qualities, the unchanging character of God. And yet, he didn't think of that equality as something to grab and hold on to. Now, if there's something true of human nature, it is this. We will grab onto our rights, what we perceive to be our rights, and we will tenaciously hold on to them to the point of it tearing something if somebody tries to take it, in our view, from us. But this is opposite to the way Christ functions. You say, is there never a time to speak up, to say what you think? Sure there is. In the love of Christ, there are many such times. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about you and me exercising the mind of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, and laying aside that right of deity, that prerogative of deity, and submitting himself. He had every right to be obeyed, worshipped, understood, to call legions of angels, to destroy those who would murder him. But he laid that right, that prerogative aside as the second person of the God did. The second aspect, the second thing or aspect of the mind of Christ is reputation. One day an incident happened when I was pastor of a church in Mississippi and I got offended it was, it was really over nothing, as most of our offenses are. And so, you know, because I was offended, it began to kind of show in my demeanor. Someone asked me what was the matter. Well, by this time, the Lord was beginning to convict me of my attitude. And 
uh, my pride and selfishness. And so this person asked me, what was the problem? I said, well, here's the problem. I don't mind being a servant, but I don't want to be treated like a servant. And I wasn't being critical of the person. I was being critical of myself. Now, isn't that the truth? I don't mind serving. Just don't treat me like a servant. I don't want to have the reputation of a servant. I want to have the reputation of somebody important. That's what got Peter's goat, so to speak, when Jesus walked up with a towel and a basin to wash his manure-covered feet from walking out in the streets of Jerusalem. And he said, you'll never wash my feet. He didn't get it. We wash each other's feet. Because we're all in this together. The spiritual leaders of Jesus' day said, looked at him and said, we weren't born from fornication. They, they were better than him. They were spiritual leaders. They were somebody. But Jesus took that in order to do the Father's will. His reputation was not the most important thing unless the Father's glory was involved. What did he do when he identified with the prostitute or the woman caught in adultery? Leave her alone because she came back later to anoint him. And he said to the leaders, to the spiritual people, leave her alone. She has done this in anticipation of my burial. Who did he associate with? Lepers, tax collectors. We'll always find time to talk to the people who matter. But sometimes we don't know who matters. Reputation, relationships, verse 7. Last part of the verse. He, well, he made himself into a reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. man. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. He had the mind of a servant. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. If you would have the mind of your Savior and Lord, then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him and serve. Would Paul say in Romans, be not high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate, to people of low estate. Condescending. He doesn't mean to be condescending. He means to lower yourself to what would appear to us to be lowering ourselves. The fourth element is risk. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The death of Christ was not the peaceful death of passing in one sleep. It was not the noble death of a warrior in battle. It was the ignominious, shameful, naked death of a criminal despised and rejected. Death on a cross. Re reserved for the worst of society. The Roman historian Tacitus said, the desire for safety stands against every great noble enterprise. John Piper speaks of the, what he calls the myth of safety. 
We are familiar with the quote from Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus was obedient unto death. For this cause I came into the world, he said. We must live with a knowledge of and commitment to our temporal expendability for eternal certainty. We must live with a knowledge of and a commitment to our temporal expendability for eternal certainty. In the case of Christ, that eternal certainty is found in verses 8 through 11. And being found in fashion or appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those in earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Christian mind. This is the mind of Christ. Now that leads us to our third and final point, the Christian mission. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is always a biblical flow to our pursuit of the prize, a process to our growth in Christ's likeness, our life as a disciple. We are a work in process and a work in progress. Sometimes we, we wonder, am I ever going to get it right? <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, is this ever going to be over? This is all, all of these things are a part of the process and a part of our progress in sanctification. In Christ's likeness, our pursuit of the prize of the upper call to Christ Jesus. And this flow is laid before us in this passage. <clears throat> our mission is the, the fruit. It's the overflow of our motive and our mind. Our motive, what motivates, what drives us, and when our thinking that we are to grab and take control of, that we're to tell our minds what to think, not to listen to the natural flow of our minds, is this process and it leads then to this, first, our work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The tension between fear and faith here is evident. We pursue Christ and likeness to Him with reverent humility. Not so much our outward work, but our work on ourselves. Now that's the thing, isn't it? But that's the hardest work. It is for me. I often think I'm 68 years old and I, I sometimes think I thought I'd be farther along by now. Honestly. I should have that, I should have that licked several years ago. It keeps coming up and I keep fighting the fight, but it's this work on ourselves. We pursue Christ. And that work is done with an acute awareness of that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Right? Do you feel that? Do you sense that? If not, you should. This is the reminder. Unless the Lord builds the house, 
I labor in vain. We work not to be accepted by him, but in response to him. God is working his will. We are working with him, working out what he works in. We work on what he works in. God himself is the source of energy, the divine dynamo. When I was a young man, I got an 11-month job. I thought it, that's one of those things I thought would never end in a power plant. I was just a flunky. Clean up, go get this, clean out that pit, smell that junk, feel that heat. But while I was working, doing necessary things that weren't all that important in my mind, in the middle of that power plant was a generator. It was a huge generator. I don't remember how many watts that, that uh, power plant produced, but, but that generator was where you, you get your lights when you turn on the switch, your hot water heater, other things, the things you use that you take for granted. And in that power plant, it's a steam-driven power plant, so coal is burned, is crushed to fine powder, burned to an extremely high temperature, and water is in p- tubes or pipes in this boiler. And that water has gotten so hot that it turns to steam, and then it expands, and there's extreme pressure on the pipes, the tubes, that pushes it toward that generator. And when it gets there, it pushes that generator, turns, causes that turbine, that turbine to spin at an incredibly high rate of speed. I've heard of questions where something hit that turbine and actually caused a massive explosion, a destructive explosion. But that's where this comes from. And for us, the dynamo, the source, is Christ himself, God himself, the Spirit of God in us, working in us, working on us as we work ourselves. We work on what he's worked in, and we work on what he's working on, all the while depending on him, knowing that he's the source. If he does not build, if he does not work, we labor in vain. This is our work. The work that comes out of that, our witness and other things, Well, we'll talk about that, because the next thought is our words, and our words are a part of this whole process. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Has that ever been more true? Work out your own salvation, do all things. Now, notice the connection here. Without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Keep on doing what you're doing in your pursuit of Christ, but do so gracefully. Leave off the grumbling and griping. I think we get so used to complaining we don't notice it. Maybe it's just me. I, so if this is just for me, I'll take it because I need it. I guess I chose this topic because I need it so myself. We gripe and complain so much that we don't even notice it. Right? Don't we? Maybe you don't. 
But I do. I know. And then when I finally notice it, you know, I think I'm going to do something about it. It takes this work and this concentration away with what John MacArthur calls the emotional rejection of God's providence, God's will, and circumstances for your life. Perhaps nothing quenches the Holy Spirit more than this outward spoken and unspoken. Our words spoken and unspoken have more effect and consequences than we realize. And not just on us, on us. In contrast, look at Christ, whose mind we are to exercise. What does 1 Peter 2, 21 and following tell us? For to this were you called. Grab hold of that one. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The Son of God, second person of the Godhead, co-equal, co-eternal, the rights and prerogatives of deity laid aside, reviled, persecuted, nailed to a tree. And we gripe when we don't get our way. Don't we? And that leads to our witness, verse 15. That you may be blameless, harmless, etc. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. We are all in the process of becoming, each of us. All of my brothers and sisters, and me with them, I with them, are flawed, wounded, full of faults. Yours are so much obvious, more obvious to me than mine. I say that rhetorically, obviously I don't know you folks, but you know what I mean, right? I don't, mine don't look that bad. I'm not, I can't, I'm not too close to see them. But boy, yours show up. That's the way we think. We want to become those toward whom no one can point the finger and say, you have, you've done me wrong and you never made it right. Whose lives are unadulterated, not mixed with the poison of bitterness, strife, selfish ambition, conceit, or deceit, in a word, unhypocritical, genuine, co-laborers, co-combatants because the goal is to shine in the midst of a culture that is crooked and perverse and growing more so almost by the day. A culture in pursuit of self-indulgence, self-fulfillment and self-glory. A world in which you stand in stark and unsettling contrast because you are in pursuit of the prize of the upper call in Christ Jesus. This is an oasis, is it not? The gathered people of God. Let's don't mess it up. Well, we will. 
But if we do, may we confess it, not only to God, but to one another. Quick, to clear our consciences of anything that would be an offense. We're combatants in a cosmic conflict. We are soldiers of the cross. As Charles Spurgeon has said, it strikes me that conflict is the principal feature of the Christian life. It is battle. Onward, Christian soldiers. Paul exhorted Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Those who reject daily dying to self, one has said, in favor of gratifying the lust of their flesh, may claim to be Christian, but they are actually enemies of the cross. The Christian life is not a straight line upward, but an upward trajectory of ups and downs. So embrace the heart of one who has embraced the life of suffering And suffering that few of us will know. But many, some of us will. As Johnny Erickson Tata said in her book on suffering, when life isn't the way you like it, like it the way it is, one day at a time, and you will be blessed. This is something of the mind of Christ. You won't get it all at once. But God, help us to pursue this mind, this thinking, until he takes us home together, individually, as families, as the body of Christ. May the mind of Christ dwell in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are patient and forbearing with us. You are so good to us. Your grace 